All right, so I'm going to give you a, a little bit of confession time. Um, from a preaching perspective, I love preaching through the scriptures. If you've been a part of Anthem for a long time, we've taught through Romans and Exodus and Ruth and Ephesians and 1 Corinthians and Matthew and Luke and Acts. We've gone through tons of books of the Bible, and I love preaching through the Bible. And then there are these couple of times a year, Easter and Christmas, where they sort of culturally require a specific message. And every year I go into those just feeling like, I don't know that I want to do Christmas this year. You know, like you just get that sense of like, I'm not sure I really want to do the whole Christmas thing this year. Is there another way? And Kristen can attest to my grumpiness this year uh, preparing for Christmas. She had to talk me out of it multiple times. Um, so I'm kind of gearing up for Christmas in a really bummer way. And uh, to be honest, I didn't, our, our team teaching with myself, Kevin, Bert, and Josh, I didn't take the lead on these notes. I typically take the lead on our teaching. Bert took the lead on the notes. I was like, you know, I just don't have it. I don't have the message for Christmas. I don't have the, the heart for it this year. So I just kind of said, take it, Bert, because he had something to run with. So Bert writes his notes and teaches his messages. And I, the first one that I, that I got to do, that Titus 2-1, like, wrecked me. Like in a legitimate breaking the glass that was around my heart and inviting me into a different way, that kind of a wrecking. And it just opened me up to something totally different this year. And Garrison got to teach on peace. I was honestly even jealous about that. I was uh, down with Imago Day, and I wanted to be here to teach on peace. And then last week, teaching on hope. It was like something for me that I, I could not have envisioned for that message to preach through hope the way that we got to see it last week. I was like, as I was preaching it, you guys, my soul was being lifted. Like I felt like God was speaking to me and inviting me to experience hope in a fresh and powerful way. It was overwhelmingly satisfying to study the scriptures and to see the hope of Jesus last week. And then this week, you know, I'm all like, all right, Monday, prep day, I'm doing joy and love in one day. We're going to knock out joy, and then I'm going to do Christmas Eve also, so I don't have to think about it at all throughout the week. My grumpiness slipped back in. I was like, efficiency expert for Monday. That's my prep day. And, um, and I start getting into joy, and it's hard to, once you get into joy, it's hard to get out. Like, once you start pulling that thread... It's hard to find your way out of that particular zone. And so Monday was just gone. Like I, I, the whole day on joy, didn't even touch Christmas Eve. And so I spent Monday on joy, ended up spending some of Wednesday on joy. Uh, a little bit of Thursday, like on my drive, I went down and spent some time with our, our Genesis Collective team in Orange County. Just some, a lot of like processing and thinking and just getting overwhelmed by this. And then uh, 4.30 Saturday morning, I woke up and, and I wrote the Christmas Eve message on love. And it was like, shoot, now I just want to teach that message on Sunday. And so just they, they, they're interconnected. And that's maybe where this is going, is everything about what we're talking about is like absolutely the most beautiful thing about being a follower of Jesus. The peace, the hope, the joy, and the love that he came to give. In this Advent, this season between his first and his second coming, the era that we have to live in, if we can grasp what Jesus has for us, it changes everything about our lives. And I, I want this to change our lives. So 
Uh, first, I'm going to start with a quote from a guy named Dallas Willard, just to set the, set the mood a little bit, just kind of lower the lights and kind of set the tone. Here we go. This is mood lighting for joy. Um, so Dallas Willard, Christian author, and uh, he was a professor down at USC and, and teaches on all kinds of things philosophy related, but he writes a ton about spiritual formation and life in Jesus. So this is what he says about joy. He says, joy is a pervasive sense, not just a thought, of well-being of overall and ultimate well-being. Its primary feeling component is delight in an encompassing, good, well-secured... Sorry, well-being. Sorry, read that wrong. It is not the same as pleasure, though it is pleasant. It is deeper and broader than any pleasure. Pleasure and pain are always specific to some particular object or condition, such as eating something you really like, that would be pleasure, or recalling some really foolish thing you did, that might be pain. But for joy, all is well, even in the midst of specific suffering and loss. Self-sacrificial love is therefore always joyous, no matter the pain and loss it may involve. For we are always looking at the larger scene in which love rules, where all things, no matter what, work together for good to those who love God and are drawn into his purposeful actions on earth. To summarize that, joy, as we'll see today, is the well-being that comes from being able to see Jesus' purpose and big picture at all times and to be able to interpret actions and moments through the lens of seeing Jesus' purpose and big picture at all times. That's how we are going to learn how to find joy. I shared this with you last week. I was surprised to see that hope was not a, a baseline Christian virtue, but it was actually a virtue of maturity. Now we get a taste of hope when we give our lives to Jesus, a hope of heaven, a hope of resurrection, a hope of a future, but that Actually, hope is refined and matured through suffering and through endurance and through the, the elements of life that, that can grind a human being down to dust. In the believer, it does something totally different. It doesn't wear us down. It produces hope. Similarly, I'm seeing that joy is actually a virtue of Christian maturity as well. And we'll see how Jesus teaches about joy, and we get into this, there's a sense of the growing and cultivating of joy that needs to take place in the believer's life. See, joy is one of those things that can be frustrating to us at a surface level because we kind of feel like either we have it or we don't. I feel joyful or I don't feel joyful, and that's why I thought Dallas's definition was incredibly helpful because it goes beyond a feeling, but it's this deep sense of well-being. Our emotional uh, you know, spectrum can kind of run the range even while joy is setting this sense of well-being. Regardless of circumstances and emotional reactions to them, we can experience deep joy at all times, but it's not natural. It's not easy. And so we got to find how do we understand that joy. So first, let's start with that great moment. Thank you, Linus, for just setting this in human history for at least the last 60 years. In Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, Linus, and I guess Luke had something to do with it as well, but, um, but Linus really brought it to pop culture. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This is the angel to the shepherds. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. All right, so just to give you an idea of what this angel is saying to the shepherds. He's speaking to them, and the Greek of this, that good news of great joy, good news is the same word that we use for good news everywhere. I'm bringing you a euangelizo, a gospel of joy, great joy, epic joy. That is for all the people. And that good news of epic joy is directly connected to God becoming flesh. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So what we have at the very announcement of Jesus' coming is a connection between the gospel of joy and the presence of Jesus. So I want you to keep those things in your mind as we go through this. We're going to rewind back to Isaiah chapter 9. Now, Isaiah is an interesting book. How many of you have been inspired by passages from the book of Isaiah before at times? Have you ever been inspired by a a passage from Isaiah? Okay. Then have you tried to go back and read the whole book of Isaiah and just been like, oh man, this is a grind. Okay, yes. So individual moments in Isaiah are incredibly compelling, captivating, inspiring, and encouraging. And then you read the whole thing and it is full of history and, and difficulty and strife and challenge. And part of that is on purpose. Israel is in an incredibly difficult season in its existence, and Isaiah as a prophet is bringing a message of hope and future to an Israel that is disobedient, rebellious, they're under oppression, they're lost, they're they're incredibly, to use a phrase, they're far from God. And Isaiah is bringing a message to help bring them back to Yahweh. And in Isaiah chapter 9, We have this incredible prophecy, and it starts off with some of this history. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, if you know Israel geography, then those things might mean something to you. If you don't know the geography of Israel, then you're looking at this just like, okay. Isaiah is speaking specifically to historical circumstances in Israel, saying there was gloom, but there's not going to be gloom anymore. There was defeat and oppression, but something is going to change. And this is how he introduces what's going to change. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad with when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All of our past strife and difficulty, all of the gloom that summarizes Israel's existence, Something's about to change. Something's about to give way. That that historic gloom that has covered us is about to be lifted. Verse 6, For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what we see from Luke and from Isaiah is that the experience of the gloom. Now when I say gloom, I'm not just talking about like our kind of depression, anxiety cloud that many of us exist in. But this is the sense of a a cultural gloom. A hopeless future. An unknown where nothing looks like it's going to shine through. That was Israel's state of existence. They were under occupation and there was no way out. They didn't have the temple. They were struggling to find their faith. There there were people that were starting to drift. And Isaiah brings this message and says, well, the gloom is going to be lifted and there's going to be joy. It's going to increase the joy of the nation and it is directly connected for to us. A child is born. To us, a son is given. He's going to be everlasting Father, Almighty God, Wonderful Counselor. This is the Messiah that will lift our joy. Again, we have presence connected to joy. The presence of Jesus is connected to joy. Now go to John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. We will be bouncing around a little bit in the Scriptures and we'll find our home in just a little bit. John 1.14. We're going to read verses 14 and 16. It says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Okay, so the message of John is the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's established the Word as this pre-existing, eternal God. That Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He, he established His home among us. He came to humanity and lived here among us, with us. And from that, we have experienced grace upon grace. We've seen the glory of the Father in the form of the Son. See, the promise was a promise of presence entering humanity. God entering our story and coming to be here among us. It was directly connected. So when you have the angels approaching the shepherds and saying, fear not, and they give this great message, and then what happens behind them? A multitude of the angels. Think of the entire army of heaven, the heavenly host. We can't even fathom Legion upon legion of angels, thousands upon millions of angels, saying in uniform voice, glory to God in the highest. That is an announcement. That is a critical announcement that says God's presence has arrived on earth. So joy is the gospel. Because we have His presence, we can now start to experience the joy of the Lord. So here's this this strange thing. What you get now is you get Jesus is there. He's with them. And they get to experience this sense of joy as they are with Jesus. They see Him. They experience Him. They watch Him do incredible things. You may have thought, I know when I was a teenager, I thought this multiple times, if I could have just been there, if I could have just seen the things that the disciples saw, 
Watch the food multiply to feed thousands. Climb out of the boat and step on water. See a man get lowered through a roof who's been paralyzed and to watch him stand up and, and walk out of the room to just be there. What, a, what an incredible experience. And there's this wild reality to the New Testament. Uh, Andrew Murray, uh, a South African writer, says this. He says, The disciples never for a moment regretted his bodily absence. Have you ever thought about that? You ever read through the New Testament and how there's not one mention of, man, I wish Jesus were here right now. Not one. Not a single time in the book of Acts or any of the books following where the writers of the New Testament look back and just say, if only Jesus were here, we would know what to do. If only Jesus were here, we would get to see the power of God on display. If only Jesus were here, we would whatever. Not once. Andrew's quote finishes by saying, the disciples never for a moment regretted his bodily absence. They had him with them and in them in the divine power of the Holy Spirit. So the message, the gospel of great joy is that unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But the message of joy connected to the presence of Jesus needs to continue because the presence of Jesus has not left even for a moment. Not even for a moment. The presence of Jesus is with us today and every day. So what that means is that for us as followers of Jesus, it is now, it's different. The world is different. You have the presence of Jesus with you and therefore you have access to joy upon joy, upon joy, upon joy. There's not one of you that is limited to experience the fullness of joy that Jesus has for you, regardless of circumstance, regardless of situation, regardless of pain or privilege, whatever, you today have full and complete access to the joy that Jesus came to bring that the heavenly hosts announced when that day a child was born, that joy is yours for the taking. And Jesus wants to teach you how to take that joy. It's not supposed to be a mystery. The joy of Jesus is not supposed to be elusive, something that you can't find. Jesus is not up in heaven saying, I did a huge treasure hunt for my joy, and if you can find it, congratulations, but the rest of you are just going to be miserable until you land on my joy. What we're going to do is we're going to spend some time looking at a key and critical passage for understanding joy. That Jesus wants us to have it, so he teaches us how to find joy in him is in John chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, go there. We're going to camp there for a little bit. John 15, specifically verses 9 through 11. Uh, Jesus has been teaching... He's been doing a, a great work. We were having breakfast with my parents yesterday morning, and just this last trip to Nepal, my dad got to teach through the whole book of John. And he said, it's crazy, after hearing that message, that first message of Advent from Titus 2, how John, what was it? What did you identify, Dad? John, what through what? 13 through 17? Is that 13 through 17 is Jesus teaching, here's how to live from now, my first coming, to my second coming. Here are the instructions on how to be in me with me, through me, until I come again. Just like it's so clear how he's doing that. So here in the middle of that, he's teaching this. He says this in verse 9. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You guys heard that word abide defined? What are some of the synonyms or helpful words to understand abide? In. What? Dwell. Live. Remain. Be. You ever heard be? So the idea of abide has to do with this sense of, of how we go about the business of being human. Jesus wants us to do it in him, with him, through him, by him. Abide in me. So he says this, as the Father has loved me. So in the same way that God the Father loved me, that's how I've loved you. So the relationship between the Father and the Son is identical to the relationship from the Son to you and me. Just so you know, that's what Jesus is declaring right there. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus saying, I learned how to love you because the Father loved me. Parents, by the way, it's just a great note. Your kids are learning how to be parents by how you're parenting them. Jesus was learning how to love his disciples by receiving the love of the Father. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I want you to live in my love. Find your identity in my love. You are loved. This is an important part of the gospel. There's never a moment where you are scorned by God. Paul wanted to make that extra, extra, extra clear. So in Romans 8.1, he said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Not a bit. So you are in His love, and He wants you to abide in, your, in His love, to find your identity in His love. He keeps going. Verse 10. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now this is where things get a little bit sticky for us. Because sometimes for us, the idea of obeying commandments can feel like legalism. It can feel like religion. So here we are, kind of in this, in this world of freedom where it's like, ah, I don't want to follow rules. I want to live by the Spirit. I want, to, I want to just pursue life kind of as I understand it, and I want God to bless that. That's, that's sort of our current modern era. I want to go my way or my choice, and I want God to bless that way. And the idea of stepping into His way is, is like a jacket that doesn't fit sometimes. It's hard for us to feel like we can move the way we want to move when we hear something like this. But Jesus says, if you keep or obey my commandments, you will abide in my love. So again, he's making it extremely clear. I want you to know how to experience the fullness of my love. Okay, now we are sinful human parents. But generally speaking, as parents, we don't create rules in our household to be malicious. Generally speaking. It's not our objective to just create rules out of malice for our kids to have the lowest possible experience of being human to be the most miserable that they could be i realize that kids feel that way about the rules of parents but parents generally don't approach it that way of thinking you know creatively how can i make my kids truly miserable here's what i'm going to do in the same way the father loved jesus jesus loves us and he gives commandments to create a pathway to what is truly life, abundant life. I heard somebody talking about it this way, and they said, okay, Jesus created humanity. He knows the best way to be human 
and he teaches us how to be human in the best possible way that maximizes our human experience so that we can experience the fullness of all that he has for us. That's where his commandments come from. It's for us to be able to experience the best and the fullest and the most beautiful, powerful, joyful existence known to humanity. That's where the commandments of Jesus comes from. So he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This is you experiencing my love is to walk in my way, to follow me and do the things that I'm saying and participate in this life that I'm, that I'm giving to you. That is how you abide in my love, by walking in obedience to the things that I've said. This isn't a religious expression or experience. It's not trying to create a, a behavior set that looks good or acts in the way that we think we should act according to God. It's something totally different than that. Jesus is saying, I want you to maximize your experience of my love. And here's how to do it. I've set up a framework for life. These are the optimal conditions for you to go through life in. So I want, you to, I want you to live in that. And in that, you get all my love. Not like he's withholding love when we walk out of, outside of that, but this is an expression of my love is that I gave you commandments to live in. Just like, again, as parents, we might create parameters. Because we love our kids, we don't want them to go into danger and brokenness and, and the pain and the suffering that so many of us have experienced. We don't want that for our kids, so we create a framework for them to live in, trying to provide an avenue for them to experience life to the full. We just, you know, we're broken. We don't always get it right and culture and weirdness and all that kind of stuff. Whatever, that's us. Jesus is on a totally different level. He's given us a framework for life that is the best possible experience. So he says that. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is somewhat strategic. Jesus is teaching his disciples, I'm not telling you to do something that I myself have not lived in already. The Father gave me instruction, commandments to walk in, and I obeyed them. Is that weird for you to think of the Most High God obeying the Father, also the Most High God? Obedience is a part of Jesus' character. To walk in perfect obedience is one of the things that Jesus has gifted us with. He's showed us that obedience produces life and life abundant. He's given us a glimpse of that. He said, the Father loved me and he gave me a framework for, for life. And I've loved you. I've given you a framework for life. And he keeps going. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So right there, you need to hear a couple of things about how Jesus is approaching this. First is this. The pathway to joy is obvious and available to all who would choose to pursue it. Let's take a quick um, joy index right now. I don't know if you have something to write with. You have anything to write with? If not, you can do it mentally, but it'll be insufficient. Uh, so it's worth pulling out your phones or something to write on or, uh, you know, on your hand or whatever. Um, just do your little, do your little scale. Uh, let's see. Paul, could we bring up Dallas's explanation of joy again? Just the first paragraph. All right. So maybe using that as a framework, 
I want you to do a little self-reflection. Kind of rate your joy experience right now on a scale of 1 to 10. Uh, we'll go 0 to 10, because some of you might be like, 1 does not describe. Okay, we'll just, um, it's not mocking, I'm just saying. I, in a, in, I was trying to get to a low voice to try and reflect maybe the emotion that might go with a 1 longing to be a 0. So a 0 to 10, I want you to rate your experience of joy and just try and find yourself somewhere in, in this. I'm not going to share this. I'm not going to make you stand up and, and share it with the room. So take a moment of honesty. How do you experience joy right now? That pervasive sense of well-being. Overall and ultimate well-being. Back to verse 11. You can keep thinking about that. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus, the creator of humanity, wants you to experience the fullness of joy that is available to a human life. He doesn't want you to come up short. He doesn't want you to experience 80% or 40% or 10%. He wants you to experience the fullness of human joy. Now, I really appreciated Dallas's explanation because it, it, it doesn't connect. You know, you can, you can experience emotional range as a human follower of Jesus. You can mourn and be sad. You can rejoice and be glad. You can experience uh, the difficulties of life. You can, you can be angry. This is kind of a weird thing. In your anger, do not sin. Like, that's kind of how Paul puts it. You can experience anger. You can experience a lot of the range of emotion, yet here we have this different sense. And what you find, actually, is that hope, peace, joy, and love are interconnected and that they have a hard time operating outside of each other because Jesus also wants you to experience that peace, that sense of peace that comes from knowing the beginning and the end. So Jesus has wanted to make this pathway to joy obvious. I've given you a life to live. I've given you commandments to operate in. I've given you a way to go. And when you live this, you abide in my love. And when you abide in my love, my joy is in you and your joy is made full. The more you exist in my love, the more you experience my joy and it grows. And that's the second part. Jesus has made it clear in this passage that he wants joy to grow in us, that your joy may be full. There's a filling. Just imagine a, a pitcher and your, your soul or your life being a cup and, and Jesus just filling you over the course of your life with his joy. He wants you to experience more of his joy. That you may be full of joy is his ultimate goal. He wants that for you. That is a key objective. 
Now, his goal is full joy for you and in you. And that goal is so simple and so beautiful. He doesn't want you to abide in him, to choose his life out of some religious obligation. He wants you to choose his life so that you can experience all that life has to offer, both here and into eternity. So sometimes our experience does not match up with that. We don't know how to express it, but we don't feel the joy that Dallas talked about. We don't feel the joy that Jesus wants us to have. We have a hard time finding a deep sense of well-being. So here's 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. A little bit of context from Peter. Peter heard Jesus firsthand. John 15, the people that Jesus was teaching to, one of them was Peter. He was one of the people that Jesus was teaching that message to, and he heard this as an explanation of what Jesus was trying to accomplish in the life of his followers. Peter then goes on to live a life. We read through it in the book of Acts. We see his ministry and his work and his, the difficulties that he experienced, some of the challenges. We know that he was persecuted later in life. So Peter's writing this, this message to every Christian everywhere. He wants them to know something. This is like, sort of like Peter's memoirs, making sure that every Christian makes sure that they know what is true about Jesus. And he says this. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. He's writing to that next generation of believers that did not get to see Jesus firsthand. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter here at the end of his life, that is the end-ish of his life, it's not the total end, but nearing the end of his life, is saying, you are in this place where you have not seen Jesus, but you're experiencing him. And one of the things that's happening is now years and years and years later, we're able to still testify to the reality that in him is this joy inexpressible that fills us with the glory of the Lord. Part of what I'm trying to do is, is whet your appetite to want more of the joy of the Lord. Okay, if you, uh, if you have your, your scale written down, something that you could look at, I, I want you to actually be able to look at at where joy is in your life, or at least your evaluation of joy is in your life. And I just want you to envision that. The reason I, I had you write down the scale of zero to 10 is I want you to envision Jesus just like a, like a knob on a soundboard wanting to turn your joy over the course of your life to 11. This one goes to 11. We'll do a little spinal tap reference. This one goes to, he wants the fullness of joy. He wants it to be pervasive in your life, full and complete. So here's the thing. The message that the shepherds gave was, I bring you a gospel of epic joy. That is that Christ the Lord is born today. The message can be part of what we focus on, but we do lose sight of the presence of Jesus. Some of us get pretty heady in our pursuit of Jesus, and it becomes less and less about his presence and more and more about wrapping our 
our understanding, our minds around the truth of the gospel. There is incredible value to pursuing the truth of the gospel. Paul's letters to Timothy are evidence of that. That's not scorning that side of things. That is a a diligent pursuit of the truth is important in our lives and faith. But the joy that we experience according to Jesus is not found in the information of the gospel. It's found in the one who is the good news, the presence of Jesus himself. I can tell you this. You will probably not find joy from information alone. Actually, I'll even go so far as to say you will not find joy in information. If your faith is an exercise in logic, and maybe there's a personality element to that. You like to make sure that blocks line up and that things are put into place and that type of thing. And that's not, again, not a bad thing. But if that's the entirety of your faith, Jesus has shared with us that the joy is actually going to be found in a different place. That's understanding his presence. Learning how to abide in him, abide in his love, rest in him, live in him, be in him, be with him, experience his presence in us. And that is the source of joy in our life. When we find the way to be with Jesus, to experience him, we find the way to joy. Find the way to experience joy inexpressible. A couple of things to help us understand that. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, it's hard for me as a teacher because sometimes I go to a teaching place, but I just want to open this up and say, Paul's experience, his life is to say, when Jesus was crucified, I was crucified. But what has been filled up in the, in the place of my old life is Jesus in me. That is the treasure. That's the objective. That's the way is to find a relationship with Jesus. And in that, that's when we find life. The life I live now, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's a relational component, a connected, intimate component. Paul writes later in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy peace. There's more. But I want you to think about what he's saying. When we actually have the Spirit of God in us, the produce, the fruit, the the output of the Spirit's presence in our lives is love and joy. So we'll just camp on that joy for a minute. The reason, back to Andrew Murray's quote, that the disciples never for even a moment complained that Jesus wasn't with them is they had a deep and profound awareness that in the place of a physical bodily Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord had filled them and the, as it's called in the scriptures, the Spirit of Jesus was with them every step of the way. Everywhere they went, Jesus was there in their midst. There was never a moment where they were outside of the presence of Jesus. 
Now here's the, the reality, is that for you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit of Jesus in you. So there is never a moment where you are apart from the presence of Jesus. So why then do we experience limited joy? It's a huge question for believers to wrestle with. Why do we experience diminished joy if the presence of Jesus is with us everywhere we go? And it's connected to that John 15 passage where Jesus, though he was with them, calls his disciples to abide in him. That command expects a response. Jesus could say, abide in me. He could give them information. Everywhere you go, I am with you. But there's a step on their part to participate in the presence of Jesus. And that's to abide. You have to choose to, let me pick the right phrasing here. I'm going to use a combination of phrases because I'm having trouble landing on one that is uniform enough. You have to choose to be aware of the presence of Jesus with you at all times. You have to choose to tap into to tap into, you know where that phrase comes from? Fear, all right? To tap into, just imagine a keg and that little piece that goes into a keg so that you can open the tap. That is the idea of that phrase is it's there in its fullness and you press that thing in and you now have the Spirit of God to tap into. You can have all of what is available to you when you tap into presence of Jesus in you. And the way that we tap into that, to, to just go back to Jesus, is he said, if you walk in my way, in other words, if you keep my commandments, you are abiding in my love. That's where you are tapping into the fullness of my presence and my power. And what that connects to is that we may go about our daily lives, but we are going about with, this, with an awareness of Jesus' presence and a readiness to obey and tap into his power. So when you go to work, you're not going to work with the objectives of any other human being. You're going to work with the objectives of a follower of Jesus. Can anybody think of some of the objectives that might have been given to us through the scriptures as we go to work? Just throw them out. What are some of the objectives that Jesus has given us when we go about our day-to-day -day lives. Okay, that was a lot at once. What was that? Do everything to the glory of the Lord. There's another one with love in it. What was that? Love others, all right? Love your neighbor as yourself. What, more? Share the gospel. Go proclaiming it. What's that? Be my witnesses. Testify to the goodness of God. Anything else? Give a reason for the hope that we have. Great callback to last week. Give a reason for the hope that you have. What else is out there? Make disciples. Core component. Absolutely. And let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Pray without ceasing. Go into all the nations. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Remember the poor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Speak the truth in love. You start to see the framework of the New Testament as Jesus' commandments of how to go out into the world in the presence of Jesus, abiding in his love. When we go with that as our motive, we are tapping into the Spirit of God. Instead of being about our own objectives, we are being about the objectives of the Lord. We're starting to live with a different framework in mind. I'm not just here to do a job. I'm not just here to raise some kids and get them to 18 and out of my house. I'm not just here to make money. I'm not just here to survive. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm not even in this to extend my physical days on earth. That is not my objective as a follower of Jesus. My objective as a follower of Jesus is to abide in Him, to walk in His commandments, His way, His word, and the joy is ours for the taking. It's not a mystery. Jesus did not want this to be a mystery. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. If joy is lacking, it's not hard to figure out where to go to find the joy of the Lord. And then there's incredible benefits of having the joy of the Lord. It's our strength. It contributes to hope. It contributes to peace. It contributes to how we love another person. It, it's part of our gospel presentation. It's part of how we communicate the goodness of Jesus is that we have joy in the face of trials. That's different. That's not how I experience trials. Why do, you, why do you do that differently? Tell me about that hope. Tell me about that joy. Something in you. One more passage. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And just to, to think about the kingdom of God, the comparison to eating and drinking, think Caesar and feasting, and that was their expression of ruling, is that they, they feasted. That was like the, the pinnacle of being in charge is the eating and drinking. Now, now here we have the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Jesus. And the pinnacle of being in the kingdom of Jesus, the table that we get to sit at, is not spread with food and drink, but it's spread with righteousness and peace and joy. That is the kingdom of God. That is the experience that he wants you to have and the testimony to the world of do you know what you're missing not being at the table of the king? You're missing righteousness, and peace, and joy. I said this last week, and I will say it again. This world cannot experience joy apart from Jesus Christ. It can't. 
There is no pathway to joy apart from Jesus Christ. There's a pathway to some of the emotions. I love Dallas's explanation. Like the emotional thing that's oftentimes connected with joy is delight, pleasure. Those are things that like the surface level, and yes, the world can tap into some of those things, finding avenues to them in other ways, but they, they actually don't get joy because joy is only found in the presence of Jesus. And if you are lacking joy right now, then what's lacking is you're abiding in the presence of Jesus to experience more of what he has. Not making a judgment on your salvation or on, on, on whether you are a child of God. It's there and Jesus wants you to have more of it. So he tells even his disciples, abide in my love. I want you to have more of my joy. I want to fill that cup endlessly until it's full. Abide in my love, guys. This is how. Peter writes later, we found it, joy that is inexpressible, full of glory. It's found in Jesus and Jesus alone, the one that you can't see, but you, you love him. You don't see him now, but you believe in him. He's where joy is. So if I had to encourage you with what to do with this message, number one, it's to consider where joy comes from. Have that in your mind that can manifest in the life that you live. You now know the information. You may have known it before, but you now know the information that Jesus wanted you to have about how to access the fullness of his joy. That's not enough. The objective from Jesus is for you to live in it, to abide in it, to be in his presence. We are going to talk a ton in the coming year about being people of the presence of Jesus. Because if we don't walk in the presence of Jesus, this world is not going to want anything that we have to offer. The facts of the matter are not at issue. They are for some people, but that's not the point. You're not going to win too many people to the kingdom of God by arguing factual information. But when we walk in the presence of Jesus, and people experience his power and his grace and his love, that contagious hope that we talked about last week spilling out into a hurting humanity, that's when they start to taste the joy. They start to taste the hope and they start to taste the peace and the longing to experience Jesus for themselves. The kindness leads them to repentance. The goodness of Jesus draws them in and they get to experience that as we abide in him and his joy is made full and it spills out into this world. So my hope is that we would be people of joy by being people of presence, by being people who abide. These are building blocks for how we can go out into this world and be Jesus in this world. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for uh, that joy is available. just want to pause that prayer for a brief moment and say if I um, if you happen to be one that marked a zero or a one or a two or a three or a four on your scale first of all from my heart I apologize for even being remotely light about that reality that's not something to mock not something to 
treat lightly, and I'm sorry. But if you were one of those who is a, a zero to four experiencing the joy of the Lord, or anybody in this room that wants to do this, you can just, again, you don't need to make a deal out of it, just in your lap as you're sitting down. If you would just maybe cup your hands, just, just put them in a, in a cupped position. You can be subtle about it, you can hide it, you can put it under your jacket or whatever. I don't, we're not trying to draw attention to you. Not trying to make you feel like you are somehow a diminished follower of Jesus because your joy is low. But if you were to look at your hands and, and see them as empty, to see that cup as, as not having the fullness of joy that Jesus wants you to have, I want you to see a different desire from Jesus, that he actually does not want that for you. His goal is not that you would be joyless in this life, but rather, you've put your hands under a, a stream of water before. You might have reached into a creek and splashed your face. You've seen your hands full before. You've seen them full before. That is Jesus's objective for you is that your hands would be full of his joy. I don't know if you've been to a lake or a stream, but I, just, I want you to picture just bending down to that water and just being able to scoop up that cold water and just see it in your hands, that, that tangible, physical experience of having your hands be full. That is the picture of what Jesus wants. He longs for you to experience all of his joy. He does not want that diminished in the least. And he loves to fill your cup, to fill your hands with his presence, with his joy. It is there and available. I don't know why I feel compelled to ask this right now, but can anybody feel their hands filling up? I just, I'm curious if anybody that's got their hands cupped can feel them being filled up. Almost like water. It's okay if there's not. I just wanted to see if there was anybody that felt that because I, I felt for you. I felt the Lord just wanting to fill you today with his presence. He doesn't want you to miss out. He wants you to have it and to know it fully and completely. When our prayer teams are up here, I'm just going to nudge you, if your hands were, were cupped at any point, to receive more of his joy. When you go up for prayer, would you just make that, that sign again? And let our prayer teams pray a filling over you of the joy of the Lord. What song are we singing? Oh, good one.
you actually just start singing? Stay, stay where you are. Would you just start singing? We're going to ask you to join in a minute. But just sit for a moment. And now you can stand up and sing that. sing this next part and as we sing this next part I want you to picture Jesus standing with you just I know it can be weird to think of him standing in the room but I want you to picture him even if you need to put your hand out and envision his hand in yours he is here he is with you and he wants you to experience his fullness today when you come forward to take communion, you picture his presence. When you go and receive prayer, you picture his presence. Even as we give offerings, we're picturing his presence. And as we sing these songs, envision Jesus with us. He is the source of joy. That is where it comes from. Let's continue to worship together at any time. Come forward to take part in it.
Jesus, we come before you uh, totally humbled that you would desire us to experience fullness in this life. We don't deserve that. We're not entitled to that. Yet you, in your grace and mercy, you want us to have that. Jesus, thank you for, um, I mean, we owe you everything, yet you come and you just give and give and give and you fill and you want more for us and you want us to experience the fullest life possible. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.